Hello, everyone. How are you feeling? All good? All good? Lots of good stuff. Uh, hopefully, this one will be one more good stuff on the things that you're learning and interacting with everyone here. I'm Bob Walham. I'm a partner at CINT. I would like to say thank you for all of you that are here with us for this uh, panel that is about to start. And my mission is to tell a few words, I'll, I'm going to be fast, about CINT. So I have uh, a note here that says that we build digital solutions that transform businesses. But I wanted to be a little bit more direct with you. And uh, what uh, we really are, we are a group of damn good people that love complex problems and love people. So if you have complex problems and you want to have fun solving those complex problems in technology, we would be happy to talk, to help you, to interact, and to have fun solving complex problems. We have a tagline that says, you know, Make that tomorrow. And we're here today, and we exist to make your tomorrow, to help you perform, get better results by solving complex problems with us and having fun with it. So to start the panel, I will invite Leo Mattiazzi, which is a, also a CINT partner and EVP, and a very non-obvious business person. Leo, with you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for being here. So um, I'm joined here by uh, Chris Aiden from um, Stay Lauder, Laura Gilchrist from uh, Salesforce, and Rosadell uh, Davies at Webby from uh, Morgan Stanley. Thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you in the audience. Thank you. Nice. We are here to discuss a very important topic, and uh, we all have our own reasons to prioritize this topic. Thank you again. Among all the sessions here at South By, you chose to be here. And I'd like to hear from uh, our panelists first. Uh, why are you here? What, why do you care about this topic? So, want to start, Chris? Sure. So, I, I mean, for me, I probably like all of you, finding developers and finding people that, that you want to work with, that you want to be around more of your waking hours than you do. You know, you're, you're with these people more when you're awake than you are with your friends and family. So, you know, I... I think it's really important to find the right people to create the right opportunities and, and to really figure out how to bring people in and, and make them part of your community and, and build the things that are important to you and, and the organizations you work for. Um, from my perspective at Salesforce, we have a real gap in our ecosystem around talent and that impacts us as a company and it also impacts our customers. From a personal perspective, I am really passionate about inclusivity in tech. Um, so often what we see inside our offices, inside our organizations, is not the community that we see when we step outside. 
Um, and I really um, am passionate about making sure that we find new ways for all underrepresented groups to break into the industry. Um, so you know, what you may not know about Morgan Stanley is that we have 20,000 technologists working for the firm around the globe. And so for me, this is a business imperative as well as a, a personal imperative. Um, you know, I, I strongly believe in the adage that talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And from my perspective, there isn't a talent gap per se, more there's a visibility gap. And so companies that really move beyond the traditional ways of evaluating and identifying talent really can access a wide pool of, of talent across many jurisdictions. So this is why it's really important for me to, to talk about ways we can remove the blinders and identify and include talent wherever it resides. And, and Rosalel, you, you have a very interesting background before joining uh, Morgan Stanley. We'd, we'd like to talk a little bit about that and how that has uh, influenced you in your current Sure. Um, so prior to working at Morgan Stanley, I spent six years at the United Nations. I worked with companies around the world to improve their sustainability performance. So I served as a project manager, a product manager, and prior to Morgan Stanley, a program manager working with companies to evaluate disruptive technologies like artificial intelligence, blockchain, Internet of Things, and help them understand how it can improve their sustainability performance. So this is what really um, planted the seed for me and, and gave me this lens about the distribution of talent, right? So I spent a lot of time working with communities around the world in connecting businesses to those communities so that they can build um, products, services that actually take into account new communities, new user, um, perspectives and needs and address them. Thank you. So uh, let me frame the, the topic, the problem that we're going to be talking about here and also why it's important to me. So I'm a partner at CINT and as part of my, my job uh, I, I'm also a member of uh, our ESG advisory committee and I work very closely with some of the action groups that we have, uh, including the People with Disabilities uh, Action Group and the Black People Action Group and the Environmental Action Group. And by working with these groups, um, I learned a lot, I've been learning a lot, and learning about the challenges we face uh, in, uh, when uh, trying to build a more diverse and uh, equitable and inclusive workforce. And at the same time, we are always looking for talent, right? So. Just to use our own example, uh, just in 2022, CINT um, increased the size of its workforce, which is primarily people in tech, uh, by 1,500 people. And this number gets higher and higher every year. And it's not just us. We are competing with the whole world for, for that talent. Um, so it is. It is, uh, I would say, a, a finite game, to use a, a, a term that has been uh, very fashionable lately, right? It's, it's really um, people looking for talent in, in a finite pool, uh, and, and if we do not find ways to dramatically increase that pool of talent, uh, the gap we have today 
is only going to uh, increase. So we have companies looking for talent, not being able to fill out all of the positions they have available. We have, uh, at, this, at the same time, we have pools of the population who do not have access to this job market, and we have companies trying to um, inc um, improve their diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. Um, so we have all of these three components, and how do they speak to each other? That's what we're going to be talking about here, and uh, we want to see if there are ways that the industry can work better, uh, companies can partner better together in order to solve this problem. So just to give some numbers here, um, so that we, we, we know the size of the problem we're talking about. So the IDC Institute um, estimates that, estimated that in 21, there was a 1.4 million gap in the number of developers in the world. And that number would be 4 million by 25. Uh, another research institute estimates that um, we, we had about 25 million uh, developers particularly in the world in 21, and they project 30 million by 26, but that's a gap of more than 5 million developers by 2026. That's three years from now. So it is a big gap today, and it's... Uh, it's forecasted to, to only increase. So, first question for, for the panelists is, um, what initiatives have you seen in the market, could be in your own organizations or, or outside, that show us how we can think differently and how we can start changing the situation, how we can um, uh, make it easier or, or possible for, for people from underserved communities to join this job market and shorten that talent gap. What are the ideas you've seen and programs that you have seen that um, go in that direction? Ruth, are going to start? Sure, so one of the hats I wear in addition to being the head of our design thinking practice and um, an executive director in our innovation group in Morgan Stanley is the founder of uh, the Diverse Founders Initiative. And this is a, a program that seeks to diversify the vendor partnerships that our technology division works with. So particularly, the, the focus, or more concretely, we work with the technology ecosystem and to identify, vet, and create pathways to partnership for companies, enterprise tech companies led by diverse founders. And you know, this was born out of the need to address a shortage of diverse founders presenting at our signature event, Tech Week. So just a little context about Tech Week. It is a, a, a signature event of Morgan Stanley. We annually, we go to Silicon Valley. We bring our senior tech and business leaders and decision makers to the table to meet with you know, our existing partners like AWS, Microsoft, Salesforce, as well as founders that have technologies or emerging technologies that could be um, strategically important to the firm. And so after uh, several years of concerted effort of working to increase the participation of female-led founders, we turned our sights to increasing the participation of diverse founders in, um, in the event. 
So traditionally, we source these companies from our venture capital partners. Well, the challenge there was that those, those venture capital firms had a similar challenge that we were trying to solve for, diversifying their portfolio companies. So recognizing this challenge, I, um, I actually went through my Rolodex and reached out to non-traditional groups. So this highlights the point I made earlier around looking at non-traditional methods to identify and evaluate talent. I worked with companies or organizations that had diverse entrepreneurs with enterprise tech companies like Black Men Talk Tech, Black Women Talk Tech, and worked to forge partnerships with them. So we, had our, we launched a Diverse Founders Initiative in 2021 um, and had five companies all focused on AI um, technologies coming from these company or these organizations that we had partnered with to present at Tech Week. But we didn't stop there. We spent the next year expanding our internal and external partnerships to bring in a, a new cohort of companies to present at Tech Week. And I'm really proud to say that in 2022, we had 43% of presenting companies at Tech Week um, be, uh, or be led by a diverse founder. And so this was up from 10% in 2019. So particularly, why was this important? Many reasons. Tech Week is a fundamental on-ramp for the partnership process at Morgan Stanley for many companies. And then also, having our a diversified founder group enables us to identify several uh, innovation opportunities that we might have overlooked before. So I think really highlighting this, this way of employing non-traditional and creative problem-solving approach to finding talent helps to unlock the talent that surrounds us. Hopefully some of these founders also will become clients of Morgan Stanley. Yes, that's, the, yeah, that's on the right? roadmap for 2023. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, from a Salesforce perspective, we have this philosophy that we talk a lot with um, our customers and our ecosystem around the democratization of IT. And one of the key things that we've launched in the last few years is something called the Trailhead platform. And it's actually a free learning platform which anyone can go on to learn about Salesforce, choose a role type, whether it be an administrator, a developer, um, a marketing specialist or a sales role, and actually do all the learning that they need to be accredited to actually work in the ecosystem. So that's been huge for us because not only does it break down barriers to entry around learning and gaining skills, um, it also enables us to reach out to community groups across the world. And not only do we have the platform, we also have a community that we call Trailblazers. And this is actually a self-sustaining community where learners meet up in real life or online and support each other, have meetups, have talks. Um, and it's really gained a lot of momentum. The second thing that we're doing, not only with Salesforce, but also with some of our customers who work in the education space, um, and this is really where, where my team comes in and our innovation team, is really looking at the learner journey and you know, so much of the credentialization is kind of focused on you know, doing the test. 
um, and getting the result, getting the credential. But how do you actually support the learner throughout that journey for them to feel like they can be successful in the test? Um, you know, whatever they have to do to get that credential. How can we support them after they've gained that credential in terms of actually being able to use that in the job market? And what are those, some of the other things that they need to know for their learning journey? Because the credential is one thing, um, but we were talking earlier, it's not just having the technical skills, it's also having the skills to be able to be successful in networking and interviewing um, and actually connecting yourself to those opportunities. Perfect, yes. And to that point, just uh, an interesting story. Um, we, we have worked with, uh, with a higher education uh, institution in Brazil. Um, by the way, I... <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, so um, now I lost my... Anyway, so... <laughs> Um, so we have been working with uh, this organization in Brazil, a higher education uh, organization and a non-for-profit organization called Empodera in, in Portuguese. It means empower. They focused on um, underserved communities and, and, and helping them uh, have access to the job market. And we started um, with them uh, trying, to, well, the idea originally was to create a platform to democratize um, you know, learn how to learn uh, about technical skills to, to have access to the job market. But, after, but during the discovery process, it was very clear that there were other problems. So um, actually by talking to students and, and all the stakeholders, uh, we, we learned that several people, this, this uh, higher education organization actually reached their demographics, reached out to uh, many underserved communities. So they have people from um, uh, many different backgrounds and, and people uh, who most of them working during the day and, and having classes at night. So sacrificing a lot. And at the end, uh, even when they, they got their, their degrees in computer science or software engineering or something like that, they, many of them didn't feel confident enough to apply for a job, right? They didn't feel confident enough to create a LinkedIn profile or didn't know how to do that. So actually, the, the original idea of creating a platform was flipped in, in its head. And, and uh, now, actually, it's much more important to build that bridge, help uh, uh, you know, after the person actually has the, 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 the hard skills. What are the soft skills? What, and how do you create that emotional safety and, and the confidence that is necessary uh, for, for someone to actually enter the, the job market. And then there, we are gonna talk, of course, what happens on the other side of the house as well, with companies that want to hire people um, from these backgrounds, right? Chris, do you want to um, talk about some programs that uh, you know of that? Um... Sure, yeah, so at Estee Lauder companies, um, the first thing that comes to mind is we partnered with Microsoft, they have something called Accelerate, um, and it, it was a partnership between Estee Lauder companies, um, the city of New York, and Microsoft, basically to open up um, all of the LinkedIn learning courses to uh, the underserved communities, to open up all of the Microsoft training and certifications so people could go through them and, and um, you know, they, they don't have to pay for the cost of the materials, they don't have to pay for the cost of taking the, the certification test. It's kind of all covered as, as part of Accelerate, which is a great program. Uh, Microsoft has launched this with um, 
or in Atlanta, Houston, and, and New York. And uh, I think it's been a very successful program. Another one is uh, an organization called Year Up, which is a phenomenal organization. Basically, Year Up is a six-month boot camp and then a six-month job placement. And um, I, we, we've had amazing hiring success with, with that program. Um, but one, one thing that, that you said reminded me that, that it, it's not just, it, and also your story about the, the university, it's not just having, finding access to, to these individuals, it's also understanding what's going on with them so they're successful once they do make it through this maze and, and land a job because their scenario might be a lot different than the scenario of others. You know, they, they may have, be living at home with um, a parent that works full time and, and um, they're, they're doing a lot of the raising of their siblings and, and accommodating for their schedules and, and for their situation is, is important. And, you know, quite frankly, a lot of the people that come in through these programs, they're not familiar with how the, you know, the corporations work, and so there, there's a little bit more, of, you know, of a time commitment from their manager. There's a little bit more of a, you know, a socialization aspect that that you don't necessarily have with people from from other communities. And we've also um, one. I, I think one of the most important things that we've done is we've, for most of our positions, removed degree requirements and. That was an interesting process with us um, talking through, uh, you know, just my peers. You know, some people feel like, well, I went through all of this. Why does someone else not have to? And, and uh, you know, that, those are interesting conversations, and it's a conversation to have with the leadership of, of HR organizations, with with your own um, management staff to get them to understand this journey and and why it's so important and meaningful. I think it's really interesting, the degree requirement, because most companies at the very top level, whether it's Salesforce, you know, Google, Apple, have all kind of said we're removing degree requirements, but you still see it in job descriptions, and I think it's exactly that. It's that bias of, well, I had to do this. You know, I spent the time, I spent the money, this is what I know um, in the hiring manager level. So there's definitely, I think, a discrepancy between you know, what companies want to do from a strategy and how it actually gets executed mm -hmm. at a hiring manager level. Yeah, and I think, you know, there, this represents a really strong opportunity in terms of hiring manager education, right? So I think we spend a lot of time putting the onus on candidates, right? Finding the platforms, doing the training, getting ready, demonstrating their worth and value, whereas Again, to take off the blinders, there's a lot of opportunity in training hiring managers and recruiters to identify the skills that may exist in a different context that are transferable. Uh, working with hiring managers to develop job descriptions that focus less on credentials, but more on the actual skills that are necessary to be successful in this context and this role. Right, so one of the things that we're doing at Morgan Stanley is we're leveraging a talent intelligence platform that helps um, hiring managers and recruiters actually match skills in a candidate's profile to skills uh, needed in the job description. And then what that has enabled us to do is to unlock not only external talent, but actually t internal talent as well. So people who may not have even thought to apply for a certain role, 
because it seems so far out of their regular experience, are now encouraged to do it because they get prompts saying, hey, this is aligned with your skill set. Other people with your skill set have applied. Why not try? Right? So there, there are a lot of opportunities for, for tools in the market, as well as education of hiring managers and recruiters to unlock and remove those blinders and make talent more visible. On that point of what to look for, right? Uh, I think that uh, most in the industry, or in any industry, uh, have have been used to look for a certain. They have some checkbox, right? And you know, is, uh, did you did you check all the boxes, right, or not? Uh, is the person ready to take on this job? What, what's your what's your take on that? And what can you do uh, to think a little bit differently? And, and actually bring in people who still need to be um, basically trained or upskilled or formed to perform that specific job. Uh, like, can we change uh, if, if we still look for the same uh, checkboxes? Uh, well, I, I think the checkbox just doesn't work, right? I mean, yeah. the because regardless of what specific skills you have on your resume, for me, I tend to hire for passion and creativity, right? Mm -hmm. If someone is passionate in, in the interview, they're passionate about the, the, the role or the opportunity, they're, they're much more likely to be successful. And you know, programming languages change, technology changes, so if I believe that they have, they're adaptable and, and, and uh, you know, they're, they're capable, I can bring them up to speed on the things that they need to know to be successful in the job. But it, it's really hard to infuse passion into someone to, to say, you know, be more passionate doesn't really work, <laughs> right? You can upskill someone in a new skill in weeks or months. Um, to change someone's behavior is years at best, possibly futile. So I agree with you. There's definitely something around, you know, what are the attitudes and behaviors that someone brings to the role and to your organization? And those don't always jump out on the page when you're looking at CVs or online profiles. Um, so there's definitely something to your point around like how do you actually connect with communities and with individuals. And I think as leaders, you know, always managing your talent pipeline is just huge. It's incumbent on all of us. So whether it's here at South by Southwest, it's whether it's in your community, volunteering, networking, whatever it is. Um, if you're looking for someone when you need them, that's when it defaults to that checkbox exercise, yeah. you know, using algorithms um, rather than actually, you know, nurturing that talent and having a strong idea of how someone may be able to fit and add value to your organization. Yeah, and on, as a, you know, as an interviewer, it's on us as well to, you know, make the situation of the interview a lot less scary, right? Yes. To, to make it disarming and, and make people feel comfortable and, and be able to open up. Because yeah. it's easy for me to say, I want to see their passion, but I know they're also terrified and, and <laughs> you know, all of these things are happening yeah. and they're, they're going through all of these emotions. And so, you know, my, mm -hmm. I, that's the way I like to spend the first 10 minutes of any interview is just getting to know them, getting them comfortable. and, and you know, making sure that, that they understand that I'm here to give them a job and they're there to not give me a reason not to. Right? <laughs> so it, it is, it, 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 a lot of it's on the, the, the other side of the table, right? It's on us yeah. as we're hiring someone to 
create that, that safety. Now I'd like to go back to the, the, the topic of scale, because if we're to close a gap that is set to be five million people in just a couple of years, or maybe three years, um, perhaps we need to look at places where we're not looking, and, and perhaps we need to do something more dramatic than, than small adjustments to, to how we, we train and hire people. So I want to take a look at two, two particular um, uh, potential pools of talent that we might be overlooking. So one of them is um, um, people with disabilities. So it's estimated that 15% of the world live with some disability. That's one billion people. And I don't have the data here um, to, to cite, but I believe that in our industry, that, that number, that representativeness must be something in the low single digits, right? around 5%, 4%, give or take, but it's certainly not 15%. So um, it's a lot of people and, and, and hugely underrepresented in our industry. Um, Chris, you, you actually spoke uh, a couple of days ago uh, here at South By about the uh, hackathon on accessible beauty. So perhaps we can start that topic with you and your thoughts on it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think just like other communities, there, there's biases that, that make that, um, you know, if you're part of that, that community with a disability, it, you, you have challenges in, in um, finding empl employment, retaining employment, and, and finding a, a role that is really meaningful to you. Um, I, I think not that there's really any good stuff that the, that the pandemic has done, but there there are some some I, I guess meaningful advances in technology that, that the pandemic did bring about, and and that is one we we now all know how to work remotely pretty effectively, and I think in particular that opens up opportunities to people that are living with a disability in, in a way that pre-pandemic maybe those opportunities companies just wouldn't even consider it because someone full-time remote you know there, there was a general thought that maybe they're not working or they're not working as hard as everyone else which I think we all found out is not true because productivity during the pandemic was pretty phenomenal um, but but this community is full of brilliant people it, it's full of um, uh, people that have experiences that, that can improve all of the products that we make, all of the services that we provide, you know, it can elevate our physical spaces. And, and so, um, yeah, I mean, it is definitely a, a, a market full of brilliance and we should be tapping into it as often as we can. Because, you know, your statistics are right. Um, you know, one in six, one in seven of us have um, some form of a disability. In the U.S., that number is actually 25% in the adult population, so it, it, it's a pretty staggering number. And statistically, almost all of us in our lifetimes will have some form of a disability. Yeah, and, and to Roosevelt's point before, that uh, having leaders trained on how to include uh, people with Different disabilities is something very important, right? I, I think about this a lot, uh, especially as the head of a design thinking practice. We, we had a conversation prior to um, coming out here around, 
you know, there was a, a lot of discussion around accessibility and design, right, mm -hmm. um, uh, from a UX perspective, and that is critical. One thing I challenge myself to think about is how do we adapt our workflows to drive inclusion and ultimately belonging, right? So when we think about design thinking, pre-pandemic, it typically is a collaborative effort. You're in a room putting sticky notes on a wall, um, you know, or when we had to pivot in the pandemic to total online um, workshops and engagements. But that workflow is not conducive to someone who might be, you know, have low vision or low hearing or a physical limitation. So I'm challenging myself to identify where in our workflow uh, as a design thinking practice can we be more inclusive and adapt the workflows so that you know, uh, people with disabilities can contribute uh, the great value that uh, they, they have. Great. And um, another, I, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about two, two different pools of potential talents. So the, the other, uh, I'll give you an, again some numbers um, but I wanted to bring a global picture, right? Because um, we have, according to some stats here, uh, about 30 million developers in the world. Um, I asked GPT about that. Is, is, it, is it too soon to bring ChatGPT into the conversation? <laughs> <laughs> Are we okay already? It's been half an hour. It's okay. All right. So, so I mean, asked... you, you restrained yourself. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so what's the number of developers uh, per country, right? And uh, so the total that it gave was 27 million. Uh, this is in line with those um, uh, reports that I mentioned in the beginning. And uh, the U.S. has 4.4 million developers. India, 4.2. China, 2.2. Brazil, 900. Um, and uh, regardless of you know accuracy, but let's just take it for face value, right? So the U.S. 4.4 million developers with the current overall unemployment rate of 3.6%. So that's, that's basically full employment. So in order to add another million developers in the U.S., of course, there are opportunities for uh, people who are entering the job market. And um, the numbers I got is that it's a little over 100,000 per year. Um, bachelor degrees. I, we, I, we know that we don't need that, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's just the stats we can yes. we can have access to, right? So, um, so you, and if you think about 100,000 um, in three years, you have three, let, let's let's say let's round it up and you have 350, four, 400,000 uh, in, in three years. To make it a million, you need 600,000 more, right? So, and there is of course. Um, Upskilling, reskilling, change people that want to change career and and, and uh, go to a wealth uh, creating uh, industry, and and that's great and that's all very important. Now, if you look at other countries, and again, I'm going to use Brazil because it's my home country. Although I, I've been in the U.S. for more than 15 years, but um, um, it's still dear to to me. So, and I know the stats, so I'm going to use that. Um, in Brazil, we have then this 900,000, but we have 14.6% unemployment rate. So that is 15 million people, and they're, of course, are remarkably uh, from underserved communities. And um, so it's a lot of people that need a job, yeah. right? 
and what, what can the industry do uh, right, in order to tap into this market? It's not just Brazil. This is just an example. Right? There are other countries in Latin America, countries in Africa, countries in, in Asia. There are countries everywhere with a huge pool uh, of potential talent for the, the tech industry. So how can, how can we solve the problem for the industry and for all these people that, that uh, you know, might be looking for jobs? Uh, what, what are the different strategies or tactics that we, we can use? What can make it easier to include these people into a global workforce uh, of, of tech talent? When we talk about excluded communities, um, one of the areas that we're tapping into, which you know, exists in every country, is actually people who were previously incarcerated. Um, and that's been a real social taboo in the workplace, you know, a, a criminal record usually means you're excluded from many roles. Um, forget about roles in tech, you know, e even low-paying um, jobs. Um, and that's been really interesting. In the United States, there's currently one million people incarcerated, and there's millions of people who are far formerly incarcerated. Um, and we know that the, the people that fill our prison populations are generally from underserved communities and underrepresented communities to begin with. So that's a really interesting area um, to explore and to challenge our own biases and orthodoxies around who we actually let participate, not alone in the workforce, but in a very lucrative industry with a lot of progression. And, and we are talking before about um, perhaps some entry points into the industry, so how tools and, 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 and specific technologies that make, make, make it uh, easier for people to get started, want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, in the, in the reference to formerly incarcerated individuals, we're currently working with a nonprofit that provides an eight-month boot camp for people coming out of prison to train them as developers and support them in entering the workplace and partnering with organizations that are open to sourcing candidates from that area. I definitely think that's one area. Um, other things in terms of looking at underserved communities is actually looking at you know, how are we investing in STEM education in those areas. So it's not necessarily a shorter term for like the immediate need, but from Salesforce perspective, we invest a lot in education, and we actually partner with schools to bring them STEM education, to um, give them the access to things like computers, and um, coding classes, after-school activities that actually bring tech to people early in their learning journeys so that they're interested in the industry, they're gaining the skills, and they're gaining the confidence to actually pursue a career in tech. You know, I think Laura raises a great point uh, about looking at holistic solutions across the pipeline. So you talked a lot about the early stages of the pipeline, right? And if we look at the market, there's a concentration of programs and partnerships that focus on the early part of the pipeline, super critical. One of the things that we are also looking at is throughout the pipeline, right? How do we create this cohort of um, technologists? So we have partnered with an uh, organization called People Shores, and People Shores focuses on bringing technology skills or in-demand technology skills to underserved populations in the United States, so effectively onshoring um, technology roles. 
So we worked with them on a very unique project. So we actually asked them to step out of their comfort zone and create a bespoke program with us to identify professionals in other industries, sometimes low-wage industries, who want to make a transition. We work with them to, so we identify this group, which is often in our own backyard, right? And, and work with them in a six-month program that provides multiple things, right, that were discussed on the panel today when we talk about supportive um, training, not just hard skills, but also soft skills. So they get a six-month intensive uh, training on software development skills as well as they get introduced to the Morgan Stanley internal ecosystem. So this is an opportunity for these participants to meet with, um, to, meet, to meet employees that can be their sponsors, mentors, and advocates in the future. And the, so this program, which we call Project Elevate, started in July of 2022 with a cohort of 30 participants and they went through the training and they started at Morgan Stanley in an apprenticeship model for um, this January. So at the, they'll work with us for 12 months and our hope is that at the end of the 12 months they will um, convert to full-time roles. So I think this addresses too some of the, the ideas of readiness. Perhaps the groups, the cohort is not 100% ready, but that box doesn't need to be checked. Right? They are going to be included in a, in a network that will help them get ready, and it will be mutually beneficial. Right? So I think there are multiple solutions across the pipeline that as companies, we need to not only have our individual programs, but we need to try to work together in an ecosystem approach to, to get to scale. Exactly, yeah. So I, I think that's, that's a very important uh, point. Uh, companies are doing... Um, what they deem to be important in order to, to increase their diversity and inclusion. Um, some partnerships are starting uh, to happen, um, but I think that we need to be more of a, an ecosystem and less of one-to-one -one, uh, or individual partnerships. So uh, great stuff. And so we talked about uh, partnerships. We talked about uh, not expecting people to be, let's say, completely ready Right, investing and in, in, in helping people to get there, um, um, access, uh, creating accessible products and the need to have people who actually uh, know a lot about that, building those products, right? So tapping into the, uh, that uh, talent pool of uh, people with disabilities. Um, and, and tools that may uh, shorten the path in order to, to uh, start a career in that industry, like, for instance, low-code, no-code um, tools that, that are available. And on that topic of tools, that brings me back again to generative AI. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just by a show of hands, who here uh, attended Amy Webb's uh, presentation earlier this week? Okay, a few. Uh, I would, if, you, if you haven't, no problem, because I'm going to tell you the most important thing. <laughs> <laughs> Next year, you just come to my panel, and it's, it's all good. No, but she said um, uh, earlier this week, 
uh, and, and I quote, we enter the assistive computing era. That means basically you never think on your own again. And, and the question she had is, uh, are we creating a dangerous um, divide? Um, you know, we, we have this, this extremely powerful tool and being able to use assistive computing uh, tech is like being born rich, right? So uh, these new tools aren't available to everyone. It may create a new digital divide. Everyone will need upskilling, including all of us here. Uh, an example, uh, to make good use of ChatGPT, you need to know how to create a good prompt. There are full programs now about prompting, right? It's, it, you can, can find courses about prompting. So what do you think? Uh, Chris, perhaps I'm gonna start with you. Is generative AI going to increase the digital divide or are you a little bit more hopeful uh, and have a more positive take on, uh, on that and, and, and being more inclusive uh, in the workforce? So I, I am actually pretty optimistic that this is going to make things easier, but, but there's underpinnings that, that I, I think are super important. One is I think the internet is a basic right, and, and I think that just has to occur. We, we should just all get internet access as part of being alive. It, it shouldn't be something that, that you have to pay for. It shouldn't, it, it, it's, it's just too important. Um, you know, you, you have a lot of uh, Brazil statistics, I have a lot of US ones, so one of the challenges that we have is over 50% of the US adult population cannot read at a sixth grade level. That makes writing prompts very difficult, because uh, it is all about the prompts, but you know, the, the rumor is that we'll have a chat GPT-4 this week or next week, uh, and I think it's gonna get easier and easier, and I think with low code, no code, with, um, the ability for AI to write code for us, that's going to completely change a, a lot of things because it's gonna put us into an editor position rather than a creator. I mean, the, the, the blank page is terrifying for everyone. You know, how, how do I get, even get started? And if you're not starting from a blank page, it's a lot easier to, to build that momentum. And, and as AI advances, it will be able to write code at, at a speed and scale that we will never be able to keep up with, and that's just gonna create new applications and, and new opportunities. You know, the last time I got this addicted to technology was the iPhone, this quickly. So I, I, I just think it actually could be a, a wonderful equalizer, but it has to improve, it has to get better, and it can't be, to your point, just for a, a select few that know how to navigate it. I would add that uh, we also need to be intentional about that, right? Yeah. Because otherwise people uh, from vulnerable backgrounds will yeah. perhaps mm -hmm. never have access mm -hmm. to it, yeah. never even know that there is a thing called ChatGPT. Yeah. Right? We all know because we are in the industry already, and, and we, but, but it could be a powerful tool to accelerate the path uh, for uh, new entrants, right, to learn. Okay, uh, we are going to open the mic for questions, so if you already have one, please uh, come up uh, to the mic. Uh, and, and in the meantime, I will ask one final question here. So we, uh, back to the scale and the global workforce, in the beginning of this week as well, some, of, some here might, might have been to this session, 
uh, with Rohit Bhargava. He's a futurist, and, and he showed, he was speaking to us in English, right, on stage, and he showed that um, he didn't do that live this time. He said it's going to be live next time. Um, but simultaneous translation into Portuguese and some other language uh, with his avatar, his own, like, his own voice on his own skin, simultaneously speaking you know, English and Portuguese and Mandarin and Japanese. And, and, and he, he promised on stage that his next keynote is going to be in 71 languages. So uh, in order to leverage a global workforce, there are typically two main barriers, right? One is location. And I think that COVID pretty much uh, dismantled that barrier uh, quite a bit. And then we have language right, for non-English-speaking countries. So do you think that technologies like the one that Rohit showed um, are going to really help bridge that gap? Or is it going to continue to be something we see at events like South By for the few of us who can be here? I think we can bridge it if we want to. I think a lot of this is around you know, the bigger power dynamics in society where you know, by concentrating resources, concentrating skills, you know, we, we hoard kind of value and opportunity amongst a few. Like Chris said, we have the ability, we have the means to give everyone access to the internet, give everyone access to education, give everyone access to tools like that to eradicate some of those barriers. It's absolutely within our control. I think it's as leaders, as, as a society, you know, do we actually um, have the courageousness to take down those barriers and open up the floodgates so that we can create more equality. And you know, I don't see any reason why that technology couldn't be in place in communities, in the workforce. It, it really is having the will to do it, in my opinion. Want to add anything? Yeah, I, I share the optimism of um, my fellow panelists. And with a, a small caveat, right, I think one of the concrete ways that we can um, you know, democratize this technology or increase access is not only to be familiar with it, but to actually really question the, like, its development. What data has been used, right? So if we talk about even, you know, generative AI, what is the training data? Mainly English, right? Like, we talk about the language of social media, the language of the internet is still English-dominated. So we have to be very intentional about leaders to ask those questions, those probing questions, to understand what training data was used, where did it come from, who was included, who was excluded, and to really drive the potential or unlock the potential that this technology or these technologies can um, provide. Can we take a, a question from the audience? Please uh, introduce yourself and ask a question. Hello, I am Laura Palacios from the Midwest. Uh, well, I'm from Texas, but I live in the Midwest. So <laughs> I had to put that in there. Um, one of the biggest ahas I've had in living in the Midwest is that rural communities have like zero bars. There's no place in like inner cities that I've gone to that I have zero bars. And when I asked, like, well, how much would it cost to, like, get them to have just basic internet access or bars, uh, cell phone bars, um, it was like 
millions. And I was like, these farmers ain't gonna pay that? <laughs> and so um, I guess I just needed uh, to ask if that's even on y'all's radar as an opportunities, uh, you know, I love that you guys are all solution-based and you have diversity and equity and like um, marginalized communities in the forefront, but like rural communities have kids who may wanna go into tech and like that there, there is literally zero accessibility. So thoughts. I'm happy to, I think technologies like Starlink really help solve some of these problems, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from Iowa in a small town and there are no, the, I, my cell phone service doesn't work, work there very well at all, but it also doesn't work well in New York. So, <laughs> so I, I don't think it's just a problem with, with rural communities, it's a problem actually in a lot of, a lot of places. Um, but, you know, I, it, it's also market driven, right? That if these companies don't have the, the, the customer base there, they're not going to invest in, in cell towers and, and things like that. And, and where they have, they tend to leave them for a long time. You know, you'll have a, an edge or a 3G connection um, instead of a, you know, an LTE 5G connection. And, and they, they tend to be at the end of the, you know, the, the end of the line when it comes to upgrading. But, you know, Starlink was the first true, at least to my knowledge, broadband speed satellite internet, and it is available through around a lot of the world. And, and you know, there's a lot of politics associated with, with you know, with using it. But it is, as far as a broadband connection, affordable. I think again, it should be free because I think the internet should be free. But um, I, I think that goes a long way to to bridging this gap, and it's going to open up amazing capabilities, you know, the, this, uh, these ideas of automated farming and stuff like that all need an internet connection to keep the, the you know, the equipment moving in the right direction and, and the accuracy of the GPS. I think the U.S. is challenging. I mean, it is a very big country geographically, but in Europe, for example, digital inclusion is on the political agenda. So, you know, it's mandated um, that providers of the internet reach communities and reach inclusion targets. Um, in the UK, for example, when they rolled out fiber, it didn't roll out first to cities, it rolled out to Cornwall, um, you know, at the bottom of the country in a very small area. Um, so, you know, one thing is pushing the social agenda and pushing our lawmakers and government. The other thing which I think we're seeing a lot of now, particularly in the US, is where companies are stepping up where government isn't, you know, and using their their, their cash and their means um, to, to be a force for good. You know, whether that should be the roles of companies and not government, I, I don't know. But I think to Chris's point, it just goes to show that it is possible. Um, and we have to advocate for it because no one should be excluded um, from the digital economy at all, no matter where you're located. And where companies are not stepping up, there are numerous grassroots efforts I've seen. I've seen one in New York where uh, organizations are coming together and, and putting together um, you know, broadband connections and sharing them um, through re repeaters, right, in different you know, public housing communities. So there are a number of grassroots efforts, too, that are trying to address this digital inclusion um, challenge. So I think 
yeah, we can't always wait for, for government. What I have seen is that there is a critical mass that pushes government to act, and that's going to be a combination of companies and these grassroots efforts really impulsing the government to put digital inclusion on the agenda. Being from Brazil, I can tell you that you can, I, I would change that phrase a little bit. It's, you, you can never wait for government. And to everything that was said here, I, I think that, um, yeah, there's the, the political uh, willingness, but the fact that ag tech is becoming so important, I think that uh, mm -hmm. this is going to be a very strong force. Um, and, and then, as Chris mentioned, uh, there has to be a market this market is, is being created and, and it's going to be very important to connect all areas because for farmers, for people who live from uh, agriculture, it's going to be very important to be connected. And um, we want the traceability in our food too, right? Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, next question, please. Um, hello, my name is Hi. Bryce and I am a student at UT Austin as well as a founder of a company but my question—my question kind of centers around the boot camps and the programming that you guys mentioned earlier, and it's more so geared towards the motivation in getting people like me that are young, still in college or approaching college age, into those programs because a lot of the time we're not aware, or those programs are not particularly incentivized in the sense that. There are six-month programs, but that six-month tag is very scary to, you know, mm -hmm. go through the process of completion of those programs and stuff. And how can we incentivize those programs better, as well as, you know, provide like clear end goals after completion of the boot camps and certification? You want to take it? You want me to take it? <laughs> I mean, I think it's a really good question. I don't know if I have the answers. I'd love to hear from you what, what you think we should be doing. Um, I, you know, that would be really insightful for me. But, but Chris, I don't know if anything comes to mind. I mean, I, the very first thing that comes to mind is a six-month commitment is a big commitment, mm -hmm. especially if you're helping raise siblings, especially jobs, if you're studying. working full-time and going to school full-time. Um, th that's one of the things I really like about Microsoft Accelerate is it's self-led. There's, there, there's not a timer on it, at least not that I know of. Um, but your point of awareness to these things is spot on because they are hard to find. They, they, they're something that, that you know, there, there's not enough advertising dollars spent on. There, there, there's not enough socialization uh, occurring and, um, and, and it, it, it's just an automatic barrier. You know, I, I live here in Austin and I, I feel really lucky to have such an amazing library um, you know, in, in downtown Austin, I, I go there all the time, and I never thought in 2023 I would be talking about how much I love a library, mm -hmm. but it is actually a phenomenal resource. They have 3D printers, they have laptops you can check out, there, there, there's all kinds of capabilities, and, um, and, and I, I don't think that's necessary, and there's a full bar, which is very Austin. Uh, <laughs> but, um, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, I don't know what other libraries look like in, in other places, but um, my gut tells me, you know, in my 
hometown in Iowa, probably the library is not overly advanced, and in a lot of places the library is not overly advanced. But there are resources like that, but it doesn't, you know, you're not getting a, a pop-up ad or, you know, as you're Google searching, these are not the things that, that are the first hit or even on the first few pages, which means they, they don't exist, right? No, I think your, your question raises an interesting point for me that we continually need to refine these programs and have people like you co-design them with us. Like, where can I find you? Right? Where would I find you so that the message of a program would resonate? And it reminds me of an approach that United Healthcare was, has taken um, about educating about heart health in African-American communities. So for a long time, they were sending mailers out to people who were on their insurance plan and at risk, right, based on their data models. Maybe 1% response rate. So people would get the card in the mail and say, oh, I've got to do that and put it away. So they ended up partnering with this organization that ran competitions and raffles in barbershops, right? Where, so in barbershops, like this is like, you know, in many communities, right, especially African-American communities, it's like the place where everyone talks about everything, like you get really personal there. What better place to talk about heart health so the, this organization would go out and hand flyers and say, hey, come and talk to us for 10 minutes about how to check your heart health, your blood pressure. They would give um, prizes to the barber or the owners to encourage them to talk to their clients. And you know what the response rate was for um, United Healthcare after instituting this program? Anyone can guess? What, what was that? Okay, so it was, someone was close in between 65%. So from 1% response rate to cards to going into the communities, 65%. So I think, again, and highlighting the People Shores Project Elevate uh, program I mentioned earlier, we find a lot of success when we go into the communities, not expect them to come to us. Yes, perfect. I would love to hear, though, one thing that we can take away from your opinion, what we could do better. Um, I completely agree with that approach. I believed in community-centered approaches and, you know, really getting your hands dirty, you know, if you can, step onto college campuses. You know, just seeing you guys' um, your titles and everything, sometimes to a lot of people that can be very, like, oh, like they're very high up and you know this and that but um, you know someone like me I'm really not afraid because I've been through anything so I can go into any type of situation and communicate and help to elevate those communities so I think bringing you guys into different situations like that as well to communicate the work that y'all are doing and the goals that you have and being intentional and clear about those is, is the most powerful thing that you can do. So, thank, thank you. you. Noted thank, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I would also just give you a piece of advice that assume that, that everyone struggled to progress through their career and that people will empathize with the, your struggle and, and don't be scared to talk about that and ask questions. And, and you know, we, we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different challenges in our lives. So. We're, you know, we're all part of this <laughs> common bond, so just don't be worried about titles or any of that. 
All right, thanks. I know we're running. I'm sure our time will be brief. My name is Anthony. I work. I live in Austin. Work for one of the big, uh, big five consulting companies, and um, I'm glad that you know the narrative and discussion of the last several years of DEI and inclusion and everything. Um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the forgotten um, marginalized group, and that's the age, especially in the tech space, and that's the age and elderly and older mm -hmm. workers. And I know it's a big topic. It's you know, it's a loaded question, but not in terms in hiring and promoting, um, learning challenges, learning differences, uh, all these, um, you know, Microsoft Accelerate, LinkedIn, all these things are good. Adult learners tend to have some special learning challenges where uh, they do better with uh, instructor-led learning versus, you know, just um, static on online content. So just whatever, whatever you all have time to throw out at, in terms of tips, discussions, where we are in the industry, uh, policymakers, et cetera. Thanks. The tech industry has actually really ignored older workers, um, not only in the job pool, but also internally. Um, you know, at Salesforce, we were a startup, we're now 24 years old, and actually our top priority for our, our benefits um, team now is not about kind of our younger employees per se and their well-being, it's actually we now have a cohort of employees that are about to retire. Mm -hmm. and face kind of moving on from corporate life and have a lot of anxiety questions and stress and need support through that. Um, so I think you actually challenge us with a really interesting um, cohort that we often overlook. I think we need to do more in that space. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's all I can say. I can't, I can't point to an example personally where that is a cohort that we are actively engaging, but you know, I applaud you for pointing it out. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that the, the tools are pretty much the same that we, we mentioned before, right? So boot camps and, and, and uh, tools that allow people to change careers uh, and be productive faster because you don't want to go through a multi-year process, right? So. So I, I think we're at time just to be yeah. respectful for the folks, but I, we can easily go out in the hall and answer everyone yes. else's questions. Yeah. Yeah. We cannot take this, this here? No? no. Okay. But please stick around and uh, let's, uh, let's uh, have that conversation. Uh. All, right. All right, thank you so thank you. much. Thank you, Thanks, everyone. everybody.